Cool. Well, thank you, Brian, for leading us last week in uh, Nehemiah 5. And now that we're past that terribly disappointing chapter, I get to lead us in Nehemiah 6. Good Nehemiah leader again. So, and I joke, but we have to reckon with the reality of what we saw last week in Nehemiah's leadership because we, none of us can measure up, starting with myself, none of us can measure up to Jesus as our perfect leader and exemplar in persevering faithfulness. And so we must put our ultimate trust in him. That's what we saw last week. And then today, we're going to look at how Nehemiah perseveres through his fears. And while I was studying this passage, I made an observation in my own home that I believe helps illustrate the nature of our fear. Some of you may know that our family just got a puppy German Shepherd. His name is Winston. He's three months old. We love him. He's a joy. And uh, we have to keep a close eye on him, especially when our girls are around. They're four and three. Uh, and, and I mean, he's a puppy, three-month-old. He's teething. And he's about the same size as our three-year-old, Selena. So you better believe we have to keep a close eye on him. And I noticed one day, just about two weeks ago, that he walked up to Selena at one point and started sniffing her shirt and then nibbling at her shirt. And she got real scared. Daddy, Daddy, he's biting me, he's biting me. So, of course, I run across the room, I grab her, swoop her up into my arms, and all of a sudden, she starts barking. No, Winston, no. Oh, little misconfidence now. What just happened? How did she move so quickly from trembling fear to confidence? She found security and safety in one far more fearful than Winston. No one's more terrifying for both Winston and Selena than Daddy. <laughs> and her perspective on her fear quickly changed when wrapped securely in Daddy's arms. That is very much like the nature of fearing God over fearing man. Today, we're going to observe the fear of the Lord as it pertains to persevering through the fears of this world. I'm going to be picking up, what I'm doing here is I'm picking up on something very important that we saw last week that was noted that Nehemiah himself noted in chapter 5 last week, verse 9. While he was indicting the community of their sin, he said something that's important. He said, what you are doing is not good. Ought you not to be walking in the fear of God? And then he goes on to admit his own guilt in the community. But he's right. He's right. They all should have been walking in the fear of God. This command for God's people to walk in the fear of him is explicitly stated all throughout the Old Testament law, in Exodus, Deuteronomy, 
in the writings, Job, the Psalms, the Proverbs, and all throughout the prophets. And it's for their good. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's practical. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. It prolongs and protects our lives. It's the beginning of knowledge. It's a treasure. It brings delight, satisfaction. To fear God is to be blessed, to be pure, to be clean, to be confident and courageous. These are just a few explicit blessings of Scripture that are associated with fearing God. Now, it's important for us to understand before we enter into this text, family, just to set the framework for our study in fearing God this morning, is that the Old Testament uses two Hebrew words to describe the full range of emotions associated with fearing God in the Bible. They are both negative and positive. We fear him with a terror because he is the holy creator God. And we fear him with a delight because he is a gracious, redeeming God. This is the balanced perspective of Nehemiah in his opening prayer of Nehemiah 1, if you remember the first chapter of Nehemiah. At the end, he prays, Hear us, O God. We are your servants who delight to fear your name. Selena and Winston also understand this fear. They know that there is no one on earth more terrifying than Daddy. You do not want to come before him in rebellion. And they also know that there is no one more loving and more delightful to be around than daddy. That's a healthy, biblical kind of fear. In this fear, they learn that it is not good for them to choose their own way over daddy's way because he is for their good. They are safe in his fear. So family, the fear of God then is something we must know and embrace as we navigate through this world of hardships and especially when navigating through opposition. What we'll see this morning is that God's people persevere through fear with fear. We persevere through fear with fear. Having a healthy fear of God protects us from unhealthy fears of man. That's what we're going to see this morning. Let's pray and then we'll enter into the text in Nehemiah 6. Oh Lord, thank you for setting this day apart for us to come gather and worship you freely. Thank you for your word. 
which you make very clear in the fear of the Lord there is confidence it is there that your children find refuge the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life those who fear you escape the snares of death Lord help us today to, 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 to grow in an understanding of how to fear you above all things with a healthy biblical fear in accordance with your word. Lord, lead us by the power of your Holy Spirit in us to see you full of beauty and glory and majesty in all of your splendor and all of your grace and your mercy and grow in this fear of you, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read Nehemiah 6, the first nine verses. Now, when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem, the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at the time I did not set up the doors in the gates, then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Shirafim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? They sent messages to me four times in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Gashmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king, according to these reports. You have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you. A king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. Then I sent a message to him saying, Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Okay. So we see that the major reconstruction project, rebuilding the wall, is almost done. They have come so far. And where there's progress, there's opposition. You're getting familiar with that? Good, we should, because it illustrates reality in the Christian life. The unholy trinity, as Brian referred to them, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Jeshem, are still determined to disrupt the progress of God's people. In chapter 4, we saw that intimidating the community didn't work. So now, here they are, focusing their scope on Nehemiah himself. Maybe if they take out the leader, the community will surely fall apart. And their first attempt in the first four verses is the civil approach. 
They send a private letter to Nehemiah. Come, come. Let, let, us, let us gather in the plain of Ono. It'll be good for us to meet. <laughs> Nehemiah smells something foul. Oh, no, no, to oh, no. <laughs> Nehemiah responds, he knows these guys. He knows their motives. He can discern what they're up to. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those who fear the Lord can discern between good and evil, even when evil is wrapped in reasonableness. And he responds with civility. Sorry, not today, guys. I have some good work to do over here. Now, and we know that, that his response is, is on the civil side of things because they, try, they sent four times in the same manner, he says. And each time, no thanks, I'm good. In the fear of the Lord, there is security, confidence. And now they have to pivot because Nehemiah is not budging. So in verses 5 through 7, they send a fifth letter, an open letter, meaning the whole community can read it. Its content will be spread throughout the whole community. And what's inside? A slanderous rumor. It's a rumor. That's what's inside. Everybody's talking about it out here. It's pretty bad. You're doing this work in order that you might become king and rebel against the empire? That's not good. The more the people talk about this, it's going to get back to the king. Come, let's talk about this offline. Notice something here. Notice something in this rumor. Is it true or false that Jewish prophets were proclaiming a king who is to come to Judah? You bet it's true. Between Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi in this post-exilic community, prophesying about the messianic king to come? You bet it's true. So what hap what's happening here is they take some truth, twist it, amplify it, and then use it to smear his name and his character. So you're saying you're the new king, huh? That's not good. Isn't that the nature of rumors? Latching on to a kernel of truth, twisting it, amplifying it, to smear someone's name or reputation, most often in pursuit of boosting your own. Wicked. Again, Nehemiah discerns their evil schemes and responds with great security in verse 8. Nah, 
That's not true. You're just making it up. That's all he says. That's it. He doesn't go into a tailspin or take revenge into his own hands. He turns to God for his affirmation and safety. He responds with honesty, civility, and he's upfront about it. He discerns their motives to frighten him and discourage the people from their work. And he prays to God. Oh God, strengthen my hands. In other words, give me the wisdom to navigate through this wicked political minefield. Protect me, oh God. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man is a snare. But the one who trusts the Lord will be safe. That word for safe connotes being lifted up out of harm's way. Family, destructive rumors are still a common practice of opposition today, right? Just think about the smearing campaigns of our politicians to gain power and allegiance, capitalizing on fears. This is our culture. It is more and more common in society around us today to see Christians cast in a negative light. You might be experiencing this yourself right now in your workplace, in your neighborhoods, in your schools? How are we responding? In a tailspin? Insecure in the fear of man? Or with trust? Secure in the fear of God? Big difference. One will bring safety. The other will fall apart. I can't help but to think of our church family in a region of Syria that has been 100% historically Druze Muslim. There's a whole province of Syria that has been for years and years and years 100% Druze Muslim. The Druze are a sect of Islam that are very controlling and internally oppressive. That is until Christ started moving among them in the midst of the Syrian war, setting many captives free in the power of the gospel. We have friends among them. We're friends with one of the patriarchs of this movement, and we supported them over the last six years in leadership development through our young adult cohorts. It's been an incredible blessing to be close to this because it's a great awakening down there among these people. I remember when they first started telling me stories about how Christ was moving among these people. The illustration that came to my mind was that it was like popcorn popping, the domino effect of spiritual conversions to Christ in this province. It's incredible. 
After a few years of progress, they informed us one week to be urgently praying for a group of leaders. As the night before, they were gathered together in a, in a Bible study, in a, in a prayer meeting. And that night, the secret police came storming, came storming in. The secret police are hired. It's a group that is, that is tasked with the, the sole purpose uh, uh, from, they're, they're, they're hired from fundamentalist Muslims to sniff out any and all Christian activity and squash it out. So this small group of leaders is gathering one night. Special police, the, the secret police come storming in. They kidnap the leaders our friend, the male leaders, our friend, the patriarch being one of them, and they took mugshots, they took pictures individually of all the women in the group. These are the wives of our friends. So that the next day on city news, they would air prostitution ring busted among the Christians. Watch out for these prostitutes and their pimp husbands. We know that that is pure evil. That is so, so sad. And yet, in their honor-shame culture of the Middle East, we can't possibly imagine just how devastating that really was for them. This just happened like three years ago, right before COVID. How did they respond? They reached out to us immediately, asked for urgent prayer so that they can persist in their missional calling through this great persecution and opposition. And shortly after this heinous episode, the very first, the very first above ground established church began construction, which is legally protected by the city. This is the first established above ground physical embassy for the kingdom of Christ in this entire province. This is it. Look at the size of this building. That's telling of how many Christians there are to minister to in this region now. Hallelujah, family. We do not fight fear with fighting. We fight fear with fear. And he leads us in victory. That's how God accomplishes his work. We try to do his work any other way. We're building with sticks and stones. Poof. This is how his work is accomplished. Through opposition. Let's read on now. Verses 10 through 14. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you and they are coming to kill you at night. But I said, should a man like me flee 
And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him. But he uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin, so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Remember, O my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these works of theirs, and also Noadiah the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. So this guy Shemaiah appears on scene. Nehemiah goes to his house because he's confined at home. We're not sure exactly what leads him to being confined at his home, but what's clear is that this guy is viewed as a prophet among the people. He has a word of warning and protection for Nehemiah. But again, Nehemiah discerns this word cannot be from God for at least two reasons. Noted in verse 11 in his response. Should a man like me flee? Now I think this is a, both a proper pride and proper humility at play here. Like when Joseph responded to the seductions of Potiphar's wife. How could a man like me do such evil and sin against God? Here... Nehemiah knows that he's been relying on God by faith this whole time. And it's only been his reliance on God by faith that there's been any progress at all. How could he take his fate into his own hands now? And what would that do to the community? And he says, who am I to enter the temple? That's not safety. That's demise. I know God's law. I know what happened to Uzziah who tried this before. Stricken with leprosy until the day of his death. I know that God would never tell me or say, ask me to do something that is contrary to his revealed will in his word. Nehemiah discerns that it's Tobiah and Sanballat behind this. Again, in verse 13, to inflict fear. They wanted him to sin and then have grounds to smear his name. Nehemiah examines his situation according to God's word. And in so doing, he finds true safety. Again. The fear of the Lord is instruction for wisdom. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. Your days will go well, your life prolonged. Family, I hope you see what I'm doing here. I'm trying to bring forward scripture all throughout the Old Testament that's associated with fearing the Lord to support These points and what we see, how we see Nehemiah navigating through the fears of this world. He's safe and secure in God's arms. And so to God he goes for his vindication and justice. Verse 14, another imprecatory prayer. Remember them for this. I'm turning this over to you. Protect me. 
Give me your strength, O God. He turns his vindication over to God and he waits on God. That is no easy task, huh? What's easy is for us to grab hold of our own immediate vindication. Spit fire against fire. Return evil for evil. Because then we get the likes and the ticks and the responses. Immediate justification. Immediate vindication in our own eyes. The one who fears the Lord lives for the righteousness of God to display his character. Family, what we see here from Nehemiah's response should help us consider ways that we can examine ourselves and our surroundings. When you hear others talk or invite you to do things and say things that you're just not sure about, here's a few questions to ask yourself. Is this advice or talk consistent with God's word? Or is it leading me to sin? Does this advice or talk further the mission of God and his church? Or the mission of someone else? Takes discernment. Does this advice lead me toward others in love? Or does it leave me, lead me away from others in skepticism? Is this a rumor? Gossip? The tragic reality, family, is that sometimes we come across these things in the church. When we're gathered together in Jesus' name to study his word. That's doubly wicked. Does this conversation build others up or smear reputations? The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And God blesses those who fear him. Let's read verses 15 and 16. So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Triumph, victory, hallelujah. The wall is finally complete. Through all their opposition and sin, through all these frustrations, God demonstrates his faithfulness again. And this is remarkable. Scripture makes very clear the wall of Jerusalem was rebuilt in 52 days. It's only been 52 days between Nehemiah 2 and where we are right now. And this is poetic justice. Family, take it in. Verse 16. The original Hebrew text draws out the fullness of what's going on here. In verse 16, Scripture literally says, When all our enemies heard, they became afraid. 
And when all the nations around us saw, they fell exceedingly in their own eyes, knowing that this work was accomplished by God. That's what the text says. What a reversal, huh? The people of God pursue, persevere through their fears by fearing God over man, and it results in the fear of God falling on men, on their enemies. The humble are exalted, the arrogant are humbled. God's justice prevails. What do you say we close out here? What do you say we close out here? This is a high point. This is a good place to stop. I mean, how many... All right. Well, we got three verses left. All right, let's just read the rest of the chapter. Final three verses, then we'll close out. Okay? 17 through 19. This is a high point, though. They're celebrating the Lord. They completed the work. Verse 17. Also, in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehoanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Uh-oh. Maybe we should have stopped at 16. A couple things we have to note now in these remaining verses. One, Tobiah, the Ammonite, chief adversary, is married into the Jewish community. Along with others down their lines in mixed faith marriages. I thought Ezra and the whole community repented of this sin in Ezra 10. Remember with the mass, divor the mass divorce and the mass corporate repentance? What is this? Hmm. And two, look at... Tobiah's deep influence among the Jews, many were bound to him by oath. Most commentators agree, but what we see here in Scripture, that Tobiah is the most sinister of the opposition because he's a nominal Jew and plays his membership in the community for his game. He's providing some good services to the many Jews, to many of the Jews, and in return, binding them in allegiance to him, like a good politician. He works those inside to relay messages to frighten Nehemiah. And the people... Do it gladly. They owe him. And he's a good guy. Have you seen his good deeds? 
Have you heard of the good things he's done for us? He's not that bad. In these final verses, we have clear signs of sin in the community and opposition growing from within again. Enemies outside, enemies inside. Satan is a crafty influencer, isn't he? Let me bring this home to us and get real for a moment. There are over 500 adults that consider Riverstone Church to be their home church. Over 500 adults, just adults, that consider Riverstone to be their home church. Do you think that Satan, our chief adversary and prosecutor, wants to use you to frighten me? To smear my name, my family, or that of the other pastors, elders, staff members? Of course he will. Of course he wants to. That would be great victory, a great work of his to get through on the inside. Do you think he wants to convince you right now, I'm not trustworthy? He doesn't care for you, really. He only wants... You know why he's really in this position, don't you? I'll tell you why. You see? Why would they change that? They're leading you astray. Go tell everyone. They have to learn how to protect themselves, too, from him. Family, this is real. This is real. I know, I know that he will make every effort to divide us against each other, beloved. It's a great fear of mine, honestly, in this role. To be honest with you, full disclosure, relational strife is my personal kryptonite. It's my kryptonite. He knows this. But now, so do you. What will you do with this knowledge? I ask for your prayers of protection. I need them. We need them. Would you please commit to pray for us pastors, elders, and staff, ministry leaders? Please. We need them. Protect us, O oh God. The opposition's efforts in this chapter from the outside and the inside all serve to inflict fear. The final verses, the final verse of all three sections that we just read, verse 9, 14, and 19, all end with, they tried to frighten me. 
So, how do God's people persevere through fear, especially when sin and opposition will always be present? We look to God's faithfulness and direct our fears to Him. Family, God promised His people in the Old Testament that He would make a new covenant with them. The people of Ezra and Nehemiah's day were longing and looking forward to the day that he would fulfill his word by establishing a new covenant with them. This new covenant, the nature of the new covenant, is, is most beautifully and fully illustrated through God's prophet Jeremiah, specifically through chapters 31 and 33 of Jeremiah's book. In it, we see chapter 31. The nature of God's new covenant. I will forgive their iniquities and remember their sins no more. I will cause them to know me, love me, and live for me all the days of their life. Chapter 32. It will be an everlasting covenant with them to do them good. I will rejoice over them in doing good, God says. And I will put the fear of me in them so they never turn away. Chapter 33. I will make them a city of joy and praise. And they will fear and tremble because of all the good and prosperity I provide for them. Wow. Family, this is the very new covenant purchased for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen? His life, death, and resurrection on our behalf brings us into forgiveness of sin. Through his life, death, resurrection, our sins are forgiven by faith in him. We are reconciled back to God, eternally united with him. Nothing can separate us from his perfect love. And we receive all the spiritual blessings of in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All his rights and privileges and blessings are ours in him. This is the new covenant. His love perfected in us casts out our fears because he is ours. We are his and we shall have no other want. Amen? Our fear of God is one of joy and awe and reverence for who he is and all that he's done for us. Fearing God in scripture is a blessing of the new covenant. Charles Spurgeon, that famous preacher, said, it's a fear that leans toward him because of his very goodness. It's beautiful. 
The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. In it, we are safe, we are secure, we have confidence, and we can endure with great progress. As we trust him, look to him, and follow him. Amen? Amen. Last week, Christy and I Zoomed with Brother Gerges, who you just met, and he shared with us an update from his most recent trip just a few weeks ago to one of the most restricted and dangerous countries in the entire Arab Peninsula for gospel ministry. He shared with us that the three days leading up to this trip, he couldn't sleep a wink because he was trembling to the core in fear and anxiety. And yet, he told us that something happened when he landed that he never experienced before in 25 years of his missions work. He said the moment he stepped foot off the plane, first step onto this land, he said he was overcome by a wave of peace, assuring him very clearly, I am here and I am with you. He is with us, family. He is with us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And Lord, you have sent us out as sheep among wolves. You tell us in your, world, in your word that there are wolves on the outside and wolves that even rise up from within. Lord, protect us from fearing those who can smear our names, our reputations, and even those who can put us to death and give us a full, weighty fear of you, the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Lord, help us to look to you through your word in understanding the fullness of your covenantal love toward us. Help us to fear you with a covenantal delight in you. Twas grace that taught our hearts to fear. Twas grace our fears relieved. Fill us with your love. Perfect your love in us that we would fear you and you alone and move out as agents of peace and reconciliation, steadfast and secure, immovable in the world around us, trusting in you, and that in our love, in our security and safety, it would abound in a powerful witness and praise and thanksgiving to those around us. Lord, awaken faith for those who do not know you this morning, that they too would find safety and security in this great love. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Fear the Lord, all you his saints. He'll give you everything. Hallelujah. 
I have two books to recommend on your way out too if you want. Rejoice and Tremble, The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord. Great book. And a devotional, 30-day devotional, Fearing Others, Putting God First. I would highly recommend both of them. They were very helpful for me. Lord bless you all.